So what is good and what is true and what is beautiful? These are simple questions, deceptively simple questions, and yet these are crucial questions. These are the three questions upon which all of our morality hangs upon. These are questions that, that affect everything. The way you answer these questions will affect how you think and what you believe and what you do and what you seek in life. They will affect everything. So on last year, I went to speak at a conference in the Philippines, and on my way home, I had an extended layover in Doha, Qatar. And um, what do you do when you have a day in Doha? I'll tell you. You go into the, like, the little uh, cultural center and you eat some really good baba ganoush and get sick on it later, and you, uh, and you experience like camels and sheiks and all that stuff. And then you spend the afternoon, they have the, uh, the Museum of Islamic Art there, and it is phenomenal. Now, I'm, I'm a bit of a nerd when it comes to uh, art history, but I only know Western art history. So walking in there, it's like completely blowing my categories. It was, it was just really fascinating. So I, I walk in, and then I come to the second floor, and there's this one, set, this one room, and I, I see this sign right here. It says, Notions of Beauty. And then it's got this description that at different times there have been different notions of beauty. And I'm like, yes, this is a great question. What is beautiful? Like, how do we define that? How do we, this is a great question. And under it, there's this explanation that ideals of feminine beauty, quote here, ideals of feminine beauty can change greatly over time. And the next room are images of Kajar women from the late 1800s. They were royalty, princesses, women from the king's harem. They were paragons of feminine beauty in their day. And I'm like, oh, right. The next room is full of Kajar supermodels. Woohoo! Let's go see this. So I walk in and turn the corner and see this. And I'm like, great mother of pearl, no! And then I turn around and I see this. I'm like, is that a woman? Now, <laughs> I read underneath, it says, in the Kajar period, the paragon of feminine beauty was embodied in a woman with a thick monobrow and a mustache. So what is Beautiful. Indeed, I find that that's a question that's too hard to answer. So let's go on to the next one. What is truth? What is truth? (laughs) We might find more common ground there, right? We were in the West, and at least I don't know about the rest of the world, but in the West, we have empirical data, we have science. We can come to some answers that we all are going to agree on, right? The earth is round, the sun is hot, the ocean is wet, the earth is warming. Oh, wait, wait, no, no, nix that last one. But the others, right? We got that. Empirical data tells us these things, therefore we believe them, we know them to be true. And for the most part, empirically based truth claims are accepted in the West, except when they're not. Right? So for the most part, if we have empirically based truth claims, we will accept them to describe the earth, the universe, the sun, the stars, all that. But we as a society have thrown all of this out when it comes to the most basic questions about humanity. Like, what does it mean to be human? We toss out empirical data there. What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? We no longer use that as a basis. We as a society have collectively uh, thrown out empirical data as the primary way of answering that. We don't know how to answer these questions anymore. And I wait to hear this because this is not a little detail. Like, we might know the earth is round and the sun is hot and the ocean's wet, but if we don't know who we are or what we are, or what it means to be a man, or what it means to be a woman. These are foundational issues that society itself is built upon. 
And we have no basis for answering those questions. And if we can't agree on truth and beauty, we have no chance on agreeing what is good. So let me list out uh, just a few here. Abortion, uh, LGBTQ, guns, immigration, gender, capital punishment, health care. What is so stunning about all of these is not that we don't agree. Like that's, of course, there's going to be some disagreements. What's so stunning about this is that we have no shared definition of good. Like when we come to that, we have no basis for conversation. So, so in, in our day, on our, in our neighborhood, like our next door neighbors, like we can have two people who are equally like intelligent, conscientious, kind, good-hearted people, good neighbors, living side by side, and one will look at something and say, that is good, that is, that is wholesome, that is lovely, that is great. And then the other person right next door looking at the exact same things will say, that is ugly, that is perverse, that is even demonic. Two people, same things, totally different results. One sees it as good, the other is perverse. One is truth, the other is lies. One is beauty, the other is horrified. We live in a day that has no common standard, no grid to share for judging what is good, true, or beautiful. And if you dig into this, if you dig into this, like what possibly is our basis for making moral decisions? Like how do we do this? What's the the center of our moral authority there? The further you dig down, the only answer that I can seem to find at the heart of the center of our morality is you. So what's true? It's what's true to you. What's good is what's good to you. What's beautiful, it's what's beautiful to you. You are the center of the moral universe in our world today. And then, and then, and then we, we set that down and we all come in here and it gets really, really weird, like awkward. Because I come in and we read the Bible and it says, thus saith the Lord. And like Jesus in the scriptures will say things that, that this is good and it, it will never ask if it's good to you. This is true and it'll never say, is it true to you? This is beautiful. It declares it. It's almost as if God doesn't seem to care what you or I think. It's almost as though he does not believe we're the center of the moral universe. Which begs the question, if Jesus makes a truth claim, like, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, but it doesn't feel true to me, what do we do with that? If Jesus says something is good or beautiful, but it doesn't feel good or beautiful to me, what do we do with that? More generally, if the scriptures, if 1 Corinthians says something is good, true, and beautiful, but it doesn't feel good, true, and beautiful to me, what do we do with that? This, this is the world we live in. We live in a world that is untethered, uh, has untethered morality, and yet we are so confident, so confident in our own moral authority that all over, like our friends, you hear this all the time, all over people feel like they have the authority to denounce what the scriptures declare is good and true and right and beautiful. The whole world's turned upside down. So today, I don't want to solve this problem so much. I just want to ask the question, how'd we get here? How'd that happen? How is it possible that for like thousands of years the scriptures were the authority in life and morality and everything for the Judeo-Christian world for thousands of years and yet now we stand in a position that we feel like we can judge the scriptures? How'd that happen? 
We can say the scriptures are immoral. How did we get to a place where we feel like we are the center of the moral universe and can actually define what is good and true and right and beautiful? So today is a history lesson. This right here, from here all the way to the end, is going to be a timeline. We're going to cover 2,000 years of history. Woohoo! That's why we've got to feed you pizza afterwards. Yeah. What we're going to do is we're going to, starting with the, the earliest Christians, we're going to look at just Western history, but in, across Western history, if you go back in these different pi- time periods, how did they answer these questions? Like, how did they know what was good, true, and beautiful? How did they know what life was supposed to look like? And so I want to start, we're going to start very, at the very, very beginning today, and I want to go back to, to the very earliest Christians, so John, Peter, Paul, if you ask them, how do you know what life is supposed to look like? How do, you, how do you know what's the standard of morality? What is good and true and beautiful? These guys, you're going to ask a guy like John, and he's going to say in 1 John chapter 1, that which was from the beginning, like the very foundation of all reality, not just morality, but existence itself, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, This we proclaim concerning the word, the logos, the logic of God. The life appeared. We've seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. So John, how do you know what's good and true and beautiful? How do you know what morality is and what life is supposed to look like? He's going to be like, I met Jesus. Like, I met him. I walked with him. I touched him. I saw him. I, 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 I touched him. I, I was there. I met Jesus. How do you know what is good and true and beautiful? He's going to say, Jesus. And then we turn over to Paul, Galatians chapter 1. Paul, what about you? How do you know what is good and true and beautiful? He's going to say, Galatians 1.11. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel, the message that I preached to you is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, 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 I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. How do you know what is good, true, and beautiful? Jesus, he told me. Peter, how do you know what's good and true? Second Peter chapter 1, uh, verse 16. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses eyewitnesses of his majesty. We saw him, we saw him, we saw him. Like if you ask John, Peter, uh, Paul, how do you know what is good, true, and beautiful? They're all going to say with one voice, Jesus. Jesus. Like he is God. He is the way, the truth, the life. He is what is good. He is what's true. He is what's beautiful. Like if you want to know the basis of our morality, it's not like some principle. It's not some standard. It's a person. His name is Jesus. We've met him. We've walked with him. We've heard his word. And of course, of course, though, though we're in a history lesson today, you're going to find there's a little problem with this. Do you know what the problem is? Jesus ascended into heaven. That's right. So everyone after this time period, after the apostles and prophets, they have to walk by faith in a way that they didn't have to. Like, we don't get to walk with Jesus, see him, touch him, uh, hear from him in the same way that they do. So how do we know? How do we know uh, after this time period, how do we know How do we know what is good and true and beautiful? How do we make sense of this? So in the next portion, I've asked four people, our volunteers would come on up, four people to help me illustrate this Across time period, let's give a round of applause to these guys. Yeah. I'm going to assign these. Um, Brooke, you're going to sit in this chair, and you are going to be 
experience. Oh, no, no, no. You're going to be reasoning. You're going to sit in the, the, the third chair. Yeah. You, my friend, are experience. If you'll sit at the very end. Dan, you are tradition. Big tradition. Emily, scripture. All right. So right here, we have, we have this four bases, four bases of authority here. We're going to talk about scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. And what we're going to do is we're going to see how the earliest Christians depended on these and used these across time period. And what we're going to do is we're going to say, when you ask the earliest Christians, like, how do you know what is good and true and beautiful? The first answer, the first answer they would always give. Could you guys have a guess out of these? Which one they would choose? Scripture, scripture, that's right, scripture, you gotta come all the way up here. Scripture, come, come, come stand right here. Right, no, a little over, oh God, look at this. Scripture. Scripture, this is how you know what is good and true and beautiful. From the very earliest time, the, the earliest Christians, um, they said scripture has to stand in front of everything and everyone. It is the very revelation of God. You know what the, the earliest Christians believed about scripture? It's 2 Timothy 3.16. They believed that it is, God breathed. So, so you get the idea here. Like, how do you make a word? How do you make a word? You take, in, take air into your lungs, and then you, it goes over your vocal cords, and you say, apple, or book, or church, right? That's how it works. So that's the same way. When they saw Scripture, that's what they thought of. They thought, God takes in a breath, and then it goes across the vocal cords, the prophets and apostles. And when it comes out, it's scripture, and scripture says one word over and over. If you listen to scripture, it will always, always, always point you to the word made flesh. His name is Jesus. So every time scripture speaks, the earliest Christians believed that it would say, Jesus. Say, Jesus. <laughs> every time Jesus. you listen to Jesus. scripture, it says Jesus over and over and over again. This is what the earliest Christians believed. But they, they, they said there's a little issue here. We're going to need some help reading scriptures from the very earliest times. We know that people struggle to read scriptures on their own. So we're going to bring up some help. Tradition, you're the help right here. You're going to come, come stand right here. Not, not all the way up, but a little bit up right there. So tradition will come stand right beside scripture. Tradition's job, tradition's job here was not to, um, not to get in the way but to help you, to assist you. So let's, let's think about it this way. Um, uh, you guys probably have maybe some convoluted definitions of tradition, and understandably so. So let me give you what the earliest Christians, how they define tradition. Tradition is the way in which Christians read and practice the Scriptures. Do you hear that? Tradition is the way in which Christians read and practice the scriptures. It's not supposed to be different than scriptures. It's just how Christians read and practice it. So from the earliest Christians, the content of tradition was very, very simple. In fact, for the first almost 400 years, you could fit all of tradition on this one little sheet of paper. Here you go, tradition, if you'd hold that for us. That one little sheet of paper is all you need. It's going to have some creeds, a baptismal formula. It's going to talk a little bit about church structure, a little bit about baptism, communion. But that's pretty much it. Like, if you're a Christian, this is the way we do things. This is the way we read the Bible. It's going to say, you know, who is God? He's one God and three persons. Who is Jesus? He's both fully God, fully man. What is the Bible? It's inspired by God. Those types of things. That was tradition's job. So let's explain how this works. Medieval Mark comes along, and he says, I would like to take Scripture out and by myself and reader. And tradition steps in and says, hey, that's great, but I'm going to come along with you, okay? So medieval Mark, if he sits there and reads Colossians 1.15 that says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And he says, firstborn? 
Well, things that are born are born. So Jesus had a beginning. He was just the first created thing God made, right? And that's when tradition's going to step and say, hey, man, can I just tell you something? You know, no one's ever believed that ever. Like the earliest Christians, from the beginning, the apostles and prophets never taught that. Jesus is, has no beginning. He is the I am. He is God incarnate. So when you read scripture, firstborn can't mean that. Read your Old Testament, dude. And you'll find that firstborn doesn't always mean born. Ah, so that's how tradition works. Think of it this way. I have a little girl, nine years old. One of these days, she's going to go on a date. So one of these days, when she's like 19 or 20, I'm going to break down a letter. And I've already got it all worked out in my mind. I'm going to be sitting there in a dark room. The guy's going to come in. I'm going to have everyone else leave the house. Be cleaning my gun. And then we're going to have a little chat, the two of us. And I'm going to say, now, here's the deal. I I want you to know. I've studied the Old Testament, and it says that if a man defiles a man's daughter, he should be stoned to death. And I believe that. (laughs) And then after we've come to a mutual understanding, I'm going to say, now, I'm going to let you take my daughter out, but I've got great news for you. Jenny and I are free tonight. We're going to be your chaperones. Chaperones, we're coming. Now, what's the role of a chaperone? Do I want to go on a date with that kid? No! He's a punk kid! I'm just going to make sure he treats my daughter right. That's the role of tradition. We picked some good tradition here, you notice? He's going to make sure, he's going to make sure Scripture keeps protected. So you can take Scripture out anytime you want. And tradition's not going to get in the way. You just bring along this little one sheet of paper and you're going to be safe. You can, you can enjoy Scripture all you want. So that, that's the basis of how they made decisions about what is good and true and right. But if you notice, there's still two other people over here. There's two other uh, sources of authority over here. So, so let, let's add these two. Reason, come on up here. Reason, you're going to stand right beside tradition. You're going to be back just a little bit. Now, reason here is super important. We all know that. We intrinsically know that, right? Even from the earliest days, they knew that reason is essential to plumbing the depths of the mysteries of God. But you'll notice reason always sets behind Scripture and tradition because there are things in Scripture and tradition that reason can never come up with on her own. So she cannot create the mysteries of God, but her job is to be used as a tool to help us understand the mysteries of God. Like, I can never fully comprehend the Trinity, but reason's going to come alongside and say, well, here's ways you can understand it. And then last but not least is experience. And uh, let's step back just a little bit, experience. Yeah, yeah right there. See, see, here's the thing. Experience, everyone loves experience, and experience has always been essential to the Christian tradition. The problem is, is we all know that experience is unreliable. And if you ask me, what do you mean by experience? I'd be like, well, what does it mean to you? Yeah. So, for the first thousand years, this is the basic order of how do we know what we know? How do we know what is good and true and right? And we'd say, first comes Scripture. Scripture, God has spoken. We must listen. And when Scripture speaks, it says, Jesus. Jesus. We want to hear Jesus. Jesus is the answer. It's still Jesus, but it's going to be through this system. And then alongside Scripture is going to come tradition and reason and last but not least experience. And this is the order that works for about a thousand years. Now here's the issue though. As you march down the timeline, um, some things start to happen. Some things start, some crazy things start to happen. So let's, let's move down just a couple feet here. And let's move down just a couple feet here. When we get to this part right here in the Middle Ages, what happens is as the church grows in size and complexity, tradition starts to grow in complexity. So tradition starts taking some things like, you know, like icons here. If you hold that. 
And like they start adding like these candles that you're supposed to burn when you pray. And then there's these special crosses that mean certain things. And then there's going to be this stack of books right here. And then, and then here's, a, actually, here's, a, just take this too. That'd be good. We can, yeah. So, so by this time, what happens is as you move along in time, tradition becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. And then what happens is, is soon scripture starts taking a back seat. And so now, tra- <laughs> now tradition, now it gets to this point where, where Scripture starts taking a backseat. And now if you want to go to Scriptures, what happens is tradition says, hey, come to me first. In fact, we go through this huge period of time, hundreds and hundreds of years, in which if you wanted to go to Scriptures, the Scriptures were only in Latin. So they had to be read through tradition by a priest or someone in authority to you. You could not read it for yourself. Church services were held in Latin, a language you did not know or speak. And so for thousands of years, you get to this point where where tradition just becomes a block to Scripture. And this moves on and on until we get to this time period. So let me explain. 1300, something's going to happen that had never happened before, at least not at this level. Something that's not supposed to even be possible happens. Tradition starts to contradict Scripture. We see this work its way out across the 1300s, but particularly by the end of the 1400s, early 1500s, a pope arises who has this idea, this dream from God. I am going to build the greatest church this world has ever seen, the greatest church that will ever exist on planet Earth. It's a church you may have heard of. It's called St. Peter's Basilica. This pope is like, but in order to build this massive, massive church and to the great glory of God, I guess. Um, In order to build that church, I need hundreds of billions of dollars. How is a man to raise hundreds of billions of dollars? And he goes, oh, I just remember something. Tradition tells me that I have the power to forgive sins. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to send out salesmen all across the country, and they're going to they're going to come and they're they're going to sing a little jingle. They're going to they're going to sing a little jing, jingle that goes like this: Every time a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Kind of nice, huh? Huh? And then, as soon as you pay your money for the right price, I'm going to write a little slip of paper, and I'm going to say your sins are now all forgiven. This is called an indulgence. All right, you get the idea? We're going to sell pieces of paper called an indulgence, and that's how he was going to raise the funds. And it worked. It worked famously and fabulously until we get to this period right here. And there's this guy. There's a, this, this, this place is a door. It's a famous door. It's the Castle Church in Wittenberg. And there's this little Augustinian monk named Martin Luther. And he hears this message. He sees all these people going to give all their money, these impoverished peasants giving all their money to the church to build this, this, this giant cathedral. And, and he's selling indulgences, selling the forgiveness of sins. And, and here's the thing about Martin Luther. He was a scholar. He said, I've read all of scriptures and I've read the ancient tradition, not all the new stuff, but I've read all the ancient tradition. And, and this is not how it works. Like this, this is not how it works. This contradicts scripture. Nowhere in scripture does it say you can sell the forgiveness of sins. You cannot do that. And so he goes and to air his complaints, he writes a, a little track called 95 Theses. And he takes it and he nails it to this door outside the the cathedral church in Wittenberg, Germany. 
And here's the thing. This is back in that day. This is how, if you were an academic, this is how you start an academic discussion. It was like the community bulletin board. You, you'd post your, your arguments up there and say, hey, this is what I'm saying. This is my, the argument I'm making. And the problem is he wrote it in Latin. It was meant to be an academic track. But what happened is some of the students came, took it down, and took it to this newfangled thing called the printing press. They translated it into common German, and they printed it. So soon everyone across Germany was now reading these 95 theses. This little Augustinian monk, Martin Luther, just said that the church is wrong. They said tradition's wrong. He just said, maybe the Pope is wrong. And this is going to start a period we know as the Reformation. So during this time, guys like Martin Luther, John Calvin, Ulrich Zwingli are all now going to struggle. They're going to say, tradition, tradition, we want you. We want you, tradition. We know tradition has to come along with Scripture, but you can't, you can't hold all of this stuff. You, you can't hold this. If you, if you hold all of this, we can't get, to, can't get to Scripture anymore. So you need to set all of this down, all of this down. We want you to just keep the one sheet. Keep the one sheet. Keep the one sheet. And now, Scripture, you have to be forward. Tradition, you have to be back. We have to reset this order. This is the argument of the Reformers, and they start arguing this, but here's the thing. At that point, at that point, this is the way the Reformers, they want to get back to the early church. At that point, tradition had been so attached to all these extraneous things that not the Reformers, but the world as a whole said, tradition, we like you, but you can go sit down. And with that, tradition was gone. They threw him out. So how do we know what is good and true and and right? And the reformers are all going to say, Scripture! Scripture! The Word of God alone! That's how we know. But then if you notice here, there's a void. There's this big void here. How do we know that we're, we're reading the Scriptures correctly? And reason's like, I got this! I got this! Look at this. You stay over there. And so during that time, at this time, this is when, this is after the Reformation. This is the time period in which you are going to find reason step in and help us interpret the Scriptures. For the first time ever, there's going to be this explosion of biblical knowledge. They're going to read the text in Greek and Latin and Hebrew. They're going to study the original context. They're going to come up with all these ways of studying the Scripture that allow you to understand things we'd never, ever seen before. So at this time, right after the Reformation, here. There's this explosion of biblical knowledge, but there's an explosion of something else too. You know what? Heresy. You see, if we don't have tradition, if we don't have the one sheet to tell us, and then reason comes and reads the Bible and says, hey, um, I'm reading that there's, there's one God and three persons, but that's, that's not very reasonable. I'm reading that Jesus is both fully God and fully man, but that's not very reasonable. So during that time, you have this explosion of heresy during that time. People start questioning things that the Christians have always believed since the time of the apostles. Apostles, Is it reasonable to believe in the Trinity? Is it reasonable to believe that the Scriptures are God-breathed? And the answer is, well, probably not. So that... that Remember, for a thousand years, the order had been such, but then it blew up at the Reformation. And just 102 years after the Reformation, we come to this place. 102 years after this, 1600, 1619, there's this terrible rainstorm, and this 23-year-old mathematician 
And he's looking for a place where he could get alone with his thoughts. He has the desire. He believes that God is leading him to reform, direct quote here, to reform all knowledge. That he wants to change the order of how we know what is good and true and beautiful. And he goes and he, he, he looks for a, a warm place to be entirely secluded with his thoughts. And he finds this, it's either a small room or an oven. We're not sure from his story, but they think it might be an oven. And he literally gets inside. And for, for days, he sits inside this oven all by himself. He climbs in, and in complete isolation, he falls fast asleep, and he has a series of wild dreams, what he calls two dreams and a nightmare. And then, suddenly, after these nightmares, he emerges, Rene Descartes, with a sentence. I think... Therefore, I am. And with that, he says, I've done it. I have transformed the order of everything we know, of how we know what is good and true and beautiful. I have transformed all knowledge. With this one sentence, he's going to usher in something entirely new, something we call modern. Modernism. Rene Descartes would, would help bring in the age of enlightenment, the age of reason. And he's going to say, um, um, you guys need to move down, move down. Keep, keep moving down, move down. But um, Scripture, you're kind of getting in the way here. Could you maybe just, yeah. yeah let's keep, let's keep moving. Uh, scripture, keep, yeah, okay. Let's keep moving down a little. That's good. And so, so he's going to say, we're going to reorder this here. But here's the thing. Um, you need to understand what he gave us in this one sentence. Rene Descartes is going to give us what we know as modernism. And so much of it is, is, can be described in just this one simple sentence. The key words are here is I. I. It's about the individual. He got in entirely isolated by himself and decided he could come up with all logic and order and reason by himself, isolated. I, individual, the individual is now above society. The individual knows best. I do what? I think that reason, rationalism, this is going to be the age of enlightenment. Reason is now going to take the very front of all of our thinking. We believe that we can, we can come up with all the answers in the universe if we just depend upon reason. Reason can save us and am. It's in the present tense. I think, therefore I am. It's called presentism. So what is the best thing? You know, in the past, for, for thousands of years, we always looked back to find the best answers in life. We're not going to do that anymore. What's the best book? It's the latest book. What's the best gadget? It's the latest gadget. What's the best thing? Why would we look back for answers? The best is in the future. So presentism. So with this one sentence, he is literally going to transform everything we know. He's going to reorder how we know what is good and true and beautiful as a society. Reason will come first and scripture and and experience are going to fall to the back. And I want you to notice something here. Scripture is still in the picture at this point. But I want you to, to notice it's back with experience here. So you can read the scriptures privately by yourself. You can believe whatever you want, and you should. Like, you should read it, and you should feel warm and fuzzy when you do. And you should think about it, and you should, it should make you be a better person. But, but come on, when we're going to have a public discussion up here, when we're going to talk about policy, when we're going to talk about what you do with your life, when we're going to make any major decisions, we go to reason. We go to the experts. We go to the sciences. We wouldn't go to scriptures for that. This is what you do in your spare time. This is what you do to feel warm and fuzzy. And during that time, um, 
you're going to find that this works as well in a number of ways. If you want to have kind of the, the example of what a modern person's view of Scripture is, it is Thomas Jefferson. You guys know Thomas Jefferson? So you know he was Christian, kind of. He had his own Bible, in fact. He took the Bible and said, I love the Bible. I want the Bible. I want, I want to experience the Bible. I love all those nice parts. Come to me, you who are weary. And there's, there's, there's gentle parts. But he said, now all those parts with miracles, like Jesus walking on water and people getting swallowed by a whale and that type of stuff, well, we all know that's bogus. So he literally just cut out all the miracles out of his Bible and created what's called the Jefferson Bible. And that is modernity. He cut those parts out because it's not reasonable So, through the Enlightenment, reason was brought to the front as humanity's great hope. Scripture became smaller and smaller and smaller, and personal experience became the main way that we read Scripture. The Western world as a whole, though, by the end, when it comes to actual decision-making, will now turn to Scriptures and say, hey, when we get into any public debates, like when we have a public school or when we have a public conversation, you're no longer invited. So, you know what? You can just go sit down. Hmm. So for a couple of hundred years then, this is going to bring us into what we call the age of enlightenment. And this is the age of reason. This is the time when we say reason. I know we used to have scripture and we used to have tradition. We don't have those anymore. But reason, you've got all our answers for us. Reason is so great. And you guys got to think about this. 16, 17, 1800s, reason did great things for us, didn't it? I mean, here who... Who here wants to go to the doctor and say, you need leeches? Oh, no! Like, the reason gave us all kinds of technology, gave us medical advances, gave us, freed us from all those medieval mysteries and things. So 16, 17, 1800s, reason is going to do what we think needs to be done. It's going to make the world what it needs to be. It's going to show us what is good and true and beautiful. It's going to lead us to the life that is truly life. But then something happens. Something happens. Um, In the 1900s, the most educated, the most rational, the most forward-thinking, the most reasonable people in the world went to war. 1914, there was something we call the war to end all wars. It's World War I. And what did reason give us? Reason gave us this wonderful gift. It's called the machine gun and chemical warfare. We're now through the power of reason, through the authority of reason, we have the ability to do what has never been done before. We now have the ability to kill people at an unprecedented rate. 1916, the Battle of Somme, 60,000 people died in one day. That's what reason gave us. And then just 20 years later, the most educated, the most rational, the most forward-thinking nations in the world get into another uh, war, World War II, and Germany, which is the center of Western thinking, of philosophy, science, and theology for all things. Germany becomes also the center of untold atrocities, the Holocaust. And reason, what's its parting gift to us? One last gift, it gives us this, the atomic bomb. The ability to kill millions of people instantly. So, after all this, we've now crossed several thousand years. And I want, I want you guys to come over here. In fact, experience, you come where? Come sit with me. Reason, you stay right there. Experience, you come sit with me. We just finished World War II and we're sitting in the French cafe. <sighs> 
And we're sitting here drinking our little lattes and smoking skinny cigarettes and we're disgruntled about everything because we're French. <laughs> and we look around the cafe and who's joining us? We're like, oh, there's, there's Jean-Paul Sartre, there's Lyotard, there's Derrida, there's Foucault. And you might not know these names, but you know these people. They've shaped your life, they've shaped your education, they've shaped our world. They're philosophers, artists. And they're sitting around and they're saying, Reason! Reason! What did you do for us, Reason? Reason, we trusted you! Remember, we're, we're in France. Two world wars have come through, decimated the country, decimated the people. And so we're sitting there, we're saying, we trusted Scripture, and it gave us crazy things to believe. We trusted tradition, and it tried to steal all of our money. We trusted reason, and it killed us. Reason, you can go sit down. And so here we are, sitting in a French cafe, just us and experience. And we look at experience and say, experience, what is good? He says, what is good to you? What is true? He says, what is true to you? What is beautiful? What's beautiful to you? And this, this is where we live today. We live in a world completely untethered in its morality. We have no basis for making any decisions. You are the center of the moral universe. As a society, we no longer recognize greater moral authority than the individual, and we have become this moral wasteland. We have no basis for even discussing these things at this point. The closest thing we have to a moral absolute is, well, if it makes you happy, well, then it must be good for you. And that, that will never show us what is truly good. That will never show us what is truly beautiful. That will never reveal the truth. Church, if we want to be part of God's mission of making life on earth as it is in heaven, we cannot embrace the untethered morality of our times. We cannot. If we want to be of any moral help, if we want to show the world the life that is truly life, then we have to show the world truth, and his name is Jesus. We have to show the world that there is such thing as beauty, and we see it on the cross of Christ. Sorry about that. <laughs> we have to show the world that you can find the answers, what is good, and it's in scriptures. So scriptures, what are you doing down there? Scriptures, come back up here. Scriptures, we're so sorry. Scripture, at GVF, you're welcome. We want you, we want you back. In fact, we want, you, we want you front and center. Scripture, we want you to stand, yes, right here. And tradition, what are you doing? Tradition, come up here. Even you. I know. We, want it, we, we need Scripture because we need to hear? Jesus. Yes, we need to hear? Jesus. Yeah, but tradition, we're afraid that if you don't come alongside, we might mishandle the Scripture. No, we don't want you to bring all of this, but we need the one sheet. We need this one sheet. We need to know that there's one God and three persons. We need to know that the scriptures are inspired. We need to know. We need to know this. We need, we need tradition to come alongside and reason. Reason, come on. Without reason, what would we do? How would we plumb the depths of the mysteries of God? So we need reason, too, to, get, to come back and put her in, and then experience. We need you, too. Reason or experience all the way over here. 
how this is the proof beyond proof. Of course we need to take our experience in. We need to reorder our thinking. We need to reorder how we know what is good and true and beautiful, and we have to do it in this order. As we continue to read the scriptures together, if we don't have any basis for deciding these things, for describing these things, we have no way of helping our world. If we want to be a people who put all of these things together, if we want to go back to the way that God designed it to be, then we have to follow the example of the early church. Not everything they did, they didn't do it perfectly, but they did it holistically. And when we put these pieces together in a world that is utterly confused and has no way to tell whether something is right or wrong, good or bad, ugly or true, we can now be a people who say, we know what the truth is because we've met him. We know what beautiful is because we've seen it. Let me show you something good. When we do this, when we know this, when we base our morality of this, we can share it and we can make this earth more like it is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, pray, Lord, that, uh, that you would give us wisdom in these very complex moral issues that we face today and that we're going to face in 1 Corinthians, Lord. Pray, Lord, that you give us humility to read the things in, in order to follow the example of the early Christians and to admit what we don't know. God, I pray that in ways that we've, we've perverted this and that we've been part of the problem over the years, Lord, I pray that you'd, you'd reveal that by your spirit and that we as a church could work together to form a new culture that knows the answer to these questions, not because we're better than anyone else, but because you've revealed it to us in your Son, God, we want to read the scriptures and we want to hear it say Jesus. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.